can trade deals do better to protect the nation's growers of seasonal and perishable produce? She says yes. Should some government regulations be subject to congressional approval? She says yes again. She's Florida's sole Republican representative on the House Agriculture Committee, and she's listening to producers about the special needs of specialty crops. Congresswoman Kat Kamek represents Florida's 3rd District, and she's joining me on the phone this week to talk about those issues. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Here's this week's AgNet Weekly. I'd like to start out talking about the Farm Bill listening session that was held in Newberry. I wasn't able to yeah. be there. One of my coworkers was there. But what were some of the things that you heard from farmers while you were there? And, and what was your overall impression? Oh, um, overall impression was actually that it was, it was kind of emotional. Um, we had such an overwhelming response. Uh, 400 plus people in the room from all over the state. Um, not gonna lie, it was it was pretty overwhelming and uh, speaks volumes of how important this farm bill is to our Florida producers. Um, so that was my initial impression. Walking in the room, just being completely overwhelmed. Uh, second was just how diverse our Florida producers really are which, of course, you know, traveling the state, knowing, getting to know families and, and our producers over the last 10 years, I, I know that. But then to have everyone in one room in front of my colleagues and telling their stories and, and voicing concerns and giving feedback was um, incredible. And it just makes you realize how special we are and, and how, how unique Florida is from an agricultural standpoint. And as far as the things that uh, we heard kind of repeatedly was uh, concerns about a seasonal perishable uh, issue that has continued to persist as a problem where our Florida producers don't have seasonal and perishable protections. So uh, Mexico and Central and South America are able to dump on our markets, um, severely harming our producers, and there's no recourse. Um, so that that was definitely um, heard loud and clear. And then I think you would hear uh, things that many producers around the country are saying. Cost of inputs is too high. Um, you know, diesel, uh, fertilizer, and, uh, you know, labor, of course, continues to be a sore spot of contention for anyone with specialty crops that requires handpicking. And uh, even though we're working towards mechanization and that R&D that'll get us to a place where we have varieties that can uh, withstand some of the more um, uh, challenges when it comes to mechanized harvesting, you know, uh, getting, getting it so they don't bruise the fruit and, and whatnot, that is all coming. Um, but in the meantime, we still have to find a way to get year-round labor that doesn't um, that, that, that doesn't put our farmers and ranchers at a disadvantage. Um, so I would say that. And then, of course, regulations. The regulatory environment is absolutely killing our producers. And that doesn't matter if you're in Florida or if you're in Iowa. Uh, the, the WOTUS issue in particular is one that I think our producers are going to be severely harmed by. And um, that was a big point of contention within the hearing as well. So many points that I wanted to talk about. So what I really kind of love about this 
particular Farm Bill listening session is that you're in Florida, and so you've got specialty crop growers, and that's not something that's heard at a lot of the Farm Bill listening sessions around the nation, where you've got you know primarily your soybean growers or your corn and wheat, but um, you, you know the southeast and then our other listening areas as well being so unique in that they're specialty crops. It's great that not just you, because you already know, but some of your colleagues got to hear about specialty crops. So if we could narrow in a little bit, I'd, I'd love to talk more about the seasonal perishable problems, because that is a problem that is more unique to our growers, you know, our fruit and vegetable growers, that some of the other bigger crop growers don't have to face. What, well, for our listeners' sake, maybe those who are not involved in agriculture, let's explain a little bit more about what that problem is, and then is there a solution for it? Yeah, you know, I think that there there is just such a general um, misunderstanding with the current trade deals and and past trade deals. You know, I think everyone is for free trade, but it needs to be fair. And what we have seen within these trade deals as it relates to agriculture is Florida really getting the shaft. And um, it started under NAFTA, uh, where uh, there wasn't those those acknowledgments that our domestic producers, particularly with tomatoes, um, would be hit hardest under NAFTA. As a result of years of hard work, um, there was a tomato suspension agreement put in place, which was designed to protect our domestic tomato farmers. Uh, what we have seen, though, is a lack of enforcement, and that has caused us to go from uh, hundreds of tomato uh, operations, commercial operations in the state of Florida to now just a couple dozen. And we are now at that tipping point where we see USMCA, which which rectified a lot of issues, certainly, but left Florida in the cold once again when it came to protecting our domestic producers. When you have 300 specialty crops that harvest about the same time as Mexico and Central America, that right there is a is setting the stage for a problem. When you compare the two producers, say Florida producers to Mexican producers, this isn't apples to apples, this is apples to oranges. What we pay in an hour in terms of labor, they pay in a day in Mexico. What we abide by in terms of regulatory structure is 50, 60, 70 years ahead. Um, they're using chemicals that were outlawed 50-plus years ago. Um, what we do in terms of um, environmental stewardship is far advanced um, beyond what we see in other parts of the world. And so it, there really is no level playing field. Then you couple the fact that that is harvested at the same time and then dumped on our market um, it bottoms out the price for our producers. And I'll use blueberries as an example. Florida produces about 40% of all of the blueberries right now for the United States. Well, much of what our producers are doing is they are, they are harvesting a variety that was developed by University of Florida, who invests heavily in research and development in um, varieties that are more hardy. They're able to be harvested with uh, machines. They um, have different flavor profiles and are resistant to different types of diseases. That same variety is what our producers pay a royalty on to the University of Florida. Well, that variety then gets stolen and used in Mexico, and the Mexican farmers don't pay a royalty. So, again, just another uh, 
key disadvantage that our farmers are having to contend with while, you know, harvesting a crop, trying to get it out into the market and uh, make somewhat of a living where most are just taking a loss rather than making a profit. So that issue of seasonal and perishable has to be um, addressed. We, we are in the final throes of what could be the end of of commercial production agriculture in Florida as we know it if we don't get this right. So not only is the Farm Bill kind of the, the, the ground zero for us to develop a legislative solution, but I have been personally meeting with the USTR, the United States Trade Representative, who is responsible for fixing this. Um, just last week, I, I had a meeting with him, and I talked about this issue. And I also talked about the lack of enforcement with the tomato suspension agreement. And he's well aware and, you know, said it would be better if we could do a legislative fix because the politics of the administration don't seem to jive with us protecting our domestic producers. So I think it's interesting that you have people within the administration saying, if you could give us a legislative fix, we would rather do that than try to do it through the administrative state. And it, it is uh, clear just from listening to you speak about the topic that you understand this inside and out. And, you know, and not to pick on any other lawmakers, but sometimes when I interview them, they know a bit about the topics. But you go into depth on this and you are really listening to your producers on this, aren't you? Absolutely. I mean, when you think about some of the, uh, not to not to get emotional about it, but Think of these multi-generation family operations that have had to grow and scale just to survive. And with that growth comes the burden of, you know, you're maintaining an operation that's feeding multiple families. You're not just feeding the world with what you're producing, but you're, you've got families on the payroll. You've got all these obligations, and it feels like your own government, your own people are against you. And, you know, the work is hard enough as is. So I get emotional about it because people are putting everything they have on the line. And when you have people who who you talk to, who you've built relationships with over the years, who call you up and say, I think this is going to be it. This is the last crop. Uh, you know, they talk about their kids getting out of school and saying, you know, instead of taking over the family farm, they're going into real estate because it's easier to sell that uh, that property and the last crop being a housing development. That's the kind of stuff that invokes an emotional reaction, certainly out of me, but other people who I talk to. It's, it's hard not to be invested in this all the way because even just from a, a strategic standpoint, you know, a nation that cannot feed itself is not secure. And of course, coming from an ag background, I feel every bit of these struggles that these families are going through. These aren't major corporate entities that are uh, bearing the brunt of the bad decisions being made out of Washington. It's our family farms. And then along that line, something else that you you kind of feel passionately about from my perspective, um, from what I have seen, would be the regulations and the how often they are overburdensome on our farmers. And in fact, you introduced this year the RAINS Act. And I think also maybe was it also in the last Congress you introduced it? Please correct me if I'm wrong. But the RAINS Act, um, tell me a little bit about what this bill would accomplish and why you think it's important. You got it right on. Um, perfect. <laughs> you have done your homework. Um, the RAINS Act, it is um, the most significant reform 
to our regulatory regime in modern history. Um, it is um, a bill that would require any major rule or regulation that costs industry as a whole $100 million or more come back to Congress for an up or down vote before it could be implemented. And this is critical for so many reasons. You know, we've seen the growth of government succeed beyond whatever the wildest dreams of our founding fathers could have imagined. I, I'm sure that they would be rolling in their graves if they could see the overreach of what our government has become today. It's, it's pretty scary that, you know, industries and, and particularly in agriculture, our producers are really at the whims of one administration to the next. It's kind of like whiplash. You deal with uh, a very aggressive regulatory uh, environment that wants to have, you know, DOL inspectors on your property and OSHA and EPA and everybody's breathing down your neck, threatening you with fines and, you know, threatening to put you out of business. And then the next one, it's like, you know, they ease off and you can kind of invest and, and think long term. But then before you know it, the administration changes again. And then you're trying to make a long term multimillion dollar capital investment in new equipment or or buying more property and expanding the operation, whatever it may be. And it's just no one can plan. No one can actually effectively survive in that kind of, you know, hot and cold environment. So the regulatory environment has really kind of become the fourth branch of government, as I say. It's the silent killer of the American dream. Because these regulators are nameless, faceless bureaucrats that dwell in basements all over Washington. And nine times out of ten you talk to them, they've never stepped foot on an operation. They have no real-world experience of the industry that they are trying to regulate. And when you find uh, an industry that is perhaps out of step with the current administration, and I'll just use the Biden administration since that's who's in office right now, you know, they have a particular um, uh, animosity towards uh, agriculture, towards uh, the firearm industry, towards uh, the energy industry. Um, so they have found that if they can't get it done legislatively, uh, they will regulate them out of business. And there's a lot of consequences to that that we see where um, by going after the domestic energy industry and, you know, no longer permitting, no longer allowing leases for, for exploration and development, no longer doing that, that causes the price of everything else to go up. And it creates this very, very volatile market where our producers who rely on a reliable supply of diesel to do what they do, um, all of a sudden, again, it's that whiplash of, hey, maybe this week we won't harvest. Maybe this week we won't do, you know, anything because we'll try to wait for the prices to come down a bit. That's no way to operate any sort of ag operation because, as you know and everyone knows, you can't turn on and off the ag industry with like a light switch. It doesn't work. <laughs> um, and so the fact that we are going after the regulators and going after the regulatory regime is, in and itself is a, a little bit crazy. Um, people look at us and say, no one really cares about that. But in reality, it's the thing that is impacting people most to the tune of $2 trillion a year is what regulations have cost consumers. And the even crazier part about this is that we don't know how much these regulations are costing taxpayers in terms of employing regulators, uh, enforcement, compliance, et cetera. And so our bill, the RAINS Act, 
um, would actually change that entire dynamic. It would be the most significant regulatory reform in modern history. And most recently, we got it included as part of the debt ceiling negotiations. And our hope is that the Senate and the White House will be forced to sign it into law. And if that is, uh, if we're fortunate and strategic enough to get that done, that will be an amazing day in America for anyone, um, whether you're a consumer or a producer. It's a great day uh, because we don't need the government continuing to regulate us out of existence. Yeah, and this was really widely supported as well. It, it was backed quite a bit by other lawmakers and other organizations as well. I saw a quote somewhere, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to completely destroy this quote, but it was something along the lines of one of the most supported bills currently in Congress with all of the support. I do want to I want to play devil's advocate for just a minute here. Yeah. When I was doing some research, as you said, I did do homework, but I found there was an organization that had commented not on this year, but on a similar bill in uh, past years. And just for full disclosure, this was like a radical environmental kind of group. So consider the source um, for our listeners as well. <laughs> consider the source. But and again, this wasn't on the current rains bill, but a similar one in uh, a few years back. They were saying that there was a concern about the separation of powers, that Congress doesn't have the authority to approve or disapprove every action within the executive branch. So now, again, I haven't seen that necessarily with the current rains but in that argument, what what do you say to that? And is that, you know, has was that addressed in the current, the way that the current bill is worded? Yeah, I mean, I think that's where that threshold is really setting the stage for what is a major rule and what is a minor rule. Um, certainly, you know, when you look at how many regulations there are currently on the books, 1.3 million, which that in itself is absurd. Um I think it's important to note that, no, Congress doesn't want to be up and down voting every single uh, technical clarifying piece of, of, you know, regulatory structure. What we are concerned about is these regulations that roll out with um, very little input from the public. And we've seen how, um, you know, the, the administration has openly admitted that, yeah, even though we go through a public hearing process, they don't actually take stock of the feedback that is given to them by industry, by uh, consumers, by people through the public forum process, um, the public comment period. So what we're concerned about is things like, uh, you know, WOTUS. Any piece of property that is seasonably wet is now subject to the jurisdiction of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, because at that point it is considered navigable. By that definition, my front yard is navigable because we get 60 inches of rain in Florida every year. And when there's a heavy rainstorm, water pools at the bottom of my property, and my ducks like to go and swim around in it. And by definition, if I want to build a fence or, um, you know, build something on that piece of property or that section of my property, am I now subject to having to go to the Army Corps of Engineers to seek approval, which will then take 10 years because that's what it takes? That's absurd. No bureaucrat should have that kind of authority. And so I think that's why that $100 million threshold is so important to note, because we're talking about major rules, major regulations that have the ability to force particularly the smaller producers, the smaller mom and pop shops out of existence because they can't comply with these overreaching um, 
uh, suggestions, regulations, guidance, you know, stuff that, and I'll say this, much of what we're seeing come out of the administration is not designed to make consumers safer or the workplace safer or the environment better. It's really just about control. It's about having um, having the, the tentacles of big government everywhere. And I think uh, we've really reached a point where it's just silly, some of the regulations that we see today. So uh, I hear that argument that people say, oh, well, Congress, you know, we can't have them voting every single little thing. Well, we wouldn't. But the things that really matter, the people's house for a reason. The people should have an opportunity to weigh in significantly before someone who's a non-elected official with no recourse um, should be able to implement and dramatically impact people's lives in that way. Yeah. And then you brought up a major regulation that, you know, anytime we talk about agriculture, we just need to talk about it. And that is WOTUS, Waters of the U.S., and you pointed out how much that affects your state of Florida. Um, it affects all of our, you know, all of our listening areas, the entire nation, really, um, especially when we have years like this where we've had so much water in some areas. You know, I, I when you and I saw each other in Washington, D.C. a couple of weeks ago, um, I asked what can be done to make WOTUS better for growers. And your answer was nothing. But I'm going to ask it again. What, <laughs> what can we do to make this manageable for growers? We can't. I, I just I don't see a a world in which WOTUS is beneficial. Um, the thing that, particularly when we're talking about agriculture, the thing that really um, irritates me is this narrative that our producers are not the best stewards of our natural resources and our land. I I think that that narrative is so dangerous. And nonsensical. When you talk to a farmer or a rancher, they're the ones that are out there working the land, working to make it better, to, to, to actually preserve it so that the next generation can, can use that land and live off the land and benefit. I, I don't understand where this narrative came from that we essentially need to protect ourselves from ourselves. Um, you know, the, the thing that just absolutely undercuts the whole argument from the environmentalists, so-called environmentalists, is that agriculture is bad for the environment, and it's not. It's actually, um, these are the true stewards of the land. Um, and I just think that it's nonsensical to impose these regulations, um, like POTUS, on our producers um, when we're talking about people who are saying, oh, well, if you can do it cheaper abroad, you know, hey, that's, that's the free market. Well, okay, environmentalists, talk to me about the food miles that it's going to take to truck all that food in. Talk to me about how they're killing the environment in other countries um, by not using best management practices, you know, and BMPs, you know, and going through through that argument. It's, it, it's a dead-end argument for them. So with WOTUS, I don't ever see a place in which it will be beneficial to our producers, I think that we have incredible technologies that are getting us even better in terms of best practices. But I think WOTUS is just a gross government overreach. And is WOTUS, uh, again, that's one of those that would have been more contained under if the RAINS Act had been approved previously? Yes. So uh, the thing about RAINS that it will grab all regulations moving forward. Um, It isn't 
retroactive, but we do have several pieces of legislation that we're going to be introducing that would tackle um, some of these bigger regulations that are impacting our producers now. And um, so in the future, if there was ever to be a WOTUS style regulation proposed, it certainly would have to come back to Congress for an up or down vote. And I think that's important because members should be accountable to their constituents. They should have to defend why they don't think you should be responsible for um, your your management of your property. Um, so, yeah, I, I think um, we'll have some retroactive, but it might take us getting through another election cycle to actually tackle WOTUS as is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, those are all of the questions that I had for you, and I've taken up uh, my, my allotted time slot. But is there anything else that you would like to talk about or anything else that you would like for our listeners to know? No, I would say um, uh, this farm bill is so critical. Um, while I think the 2018 farm bill was a great start, I think there's so many things um, that need to be tweaked um, to really get us into a place uh, where we can start looking at that next generation of of producers for this country. And if we don't get this right, I think we're going to be found, we're going to find ourselves in a really tough way um, to actually sustain agriculture for the next generation. So this one's super critical. I, I hope people stay engaged and involved. You can give feedback right on the, um, the House Ag website, um, and I encourage people just to, to go on there and leave comments because I know um, the committee reads them, our team reads them, and it's so important. And I'll end with, you know, being the lone Republican for the entire state of Florida on the House Ag Committee. It's truly an honor and a privilege. And um, I'm hoping that we make Florida proud. Well, this was a great conversation. I'm really, really happy with getting the chance to speak with you and getting to hear some of your thoughts on all of these important topics. So just thank you so much for giving me a call and taking some time out for us today. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thank you once again to Congresswoman Kat Kamek. That's this week's Agnet Weekly. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thanks for tuning in.